0: Hello, everyone. Let's talk about China. This is the Palladium Podcast. I'm Wolf Tyvy I'm joined today by Ash Milton, our managing editor. Hey, guys. Okay, so let's get started. China has been this big issue for us uh, over the last few years. Really, for the last decade, it's been becoming an issue. Uh, by us, of course, I mean America and, and broader Western world. So Xi came to power xi jinping he has been turning around the chinese state off of the path of broadly neoliberal convergence you know where china becomes a liberal democracy and and the cia gets to manipulate their elections or whatever that doesn't seem to be happening they're not going that way the 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 chinese state has sort of definitively rejected that path kicked all the cia people out of the country uh killed a bunch of a bunch of the agents that's that's uh, a very interesting situation it's not what everyone thought was going to happen or rather i'm sure it's what what some very hard-headed and realistic people thought was going to happen but the american elite broadly thought that china was going to become you know another germany uh very friendly very subservient uh very democratic and very manipulable and that has not been happening so this opens this question what do we do about that um, there's sort of broadly there's there's two camps. There's the sellouts and the hawks. The sellouts broadly think that we should just surrender to China. Uh, they won't state this explicitly in public. It's more like yeah we should continue to do business with China and not worry about it too much. Uh, despite China having a, a sort of very coherent plan for how to get the American elite to sell out and and become the economic and political center of the world. And the other the other side is is uh, you know the hawks who, they won't say this, but but basically, let's first strike Beijing. Maybe I'm exaggerating here on both sides, um, but these are the, the polls. So, so you know, there's everyone, everyone in between there as well. People who think maybe we need to be a little bit more assertive over the Taiwan issue, over the, over the Xinjiang issue, over the Hong Kong issue. Um, everyone's forgotten about the Tibet issue. That's on the hawk side. Yeah. And, and then on the, the sort of sellout or dove side, you have you have people who just think, OK, let well, maybe we can leave each other alone. Maybe we can come to some kind of friendly relations that that doesn't result in in anyone having to fight anyone else too aggressively. So these are I, I think I think both of these positions have something to them. Um, maybe there is a way to thread that needle. Um, The golden mean somewhere in the middle where we, um, you know, neither first strike Beijing nor sell out. But that whole discussion kind of puts the cart before the horse. It is framed in terms of a China we understand, a China that we just need to figure out our response to as if... You know, America's got this secure global hegemony and there's these local issues that keep popping up, like some dictator in the other side of the world who's taking his state out of the the international community norms and um, doing something else that we don't like. And we just have to kind of police the world, you know, world police uh, America. But I think I think maybe we need to take a step back. The fact that China broke all of our predictions means that maybe our worldview isn't as sound as we thought it was. And maybe our strategy wasn't as sound as we thought it was. and Maybe we should rethink more. Maybe we didn't understand China as well as we thought we did. So backing up, um, the the frame we've taken with Palladium as we think about this issue is China is an epistemic problem. We have to learn from China. We have to understand China before we can even formulate grand strategy, you know, before America can can formulate a new grand strategy in in the Pacific and and elsewhere, we need to understand what we're dealing with. What does a multipolar world with China as one of the poles look like? Um, What does what, what is China? How do we understand that? So this is the set of questions that I wanted to explore on today's podcast. Um, not so much these grand strategy questions of should we nuke Beijing or not, but but the 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 more fundamental question of what's even going on over there and how should we understand it and what can we learn. So another another dimension by which you might want to learn something. Uh, another reason is that America has been broadly stagnant and not gaining uh, not gaining ground in terms of technological development infrastructure development demographic development Uh, you know there's many different dimensions here people have you know endlessly critiqued this stuff but i think basically america is in stagnation it is in decline when people on the other side of the world from xi jinping to the aga khan say america is irrelevant you just have to survive their their sort of final death throes there's something to that america is is on the way down right now And meanwhile, China is on the way up. So presumably they are doing something right that we are not doing. They know how to run a state. They know how to develop a country in a way that we don't. Or maybe they want to in a way that we don't. So I think that's another thing we can learn from them is, hey, if we want to have a flourishing, developing society, maybe to go much further than we have already gone, to go from further than where we are, maybe there are things we can learn from China. Again, not just sort of we need to understand our adversary, but we need to understand them as something of an example. This doesn't mean we have to, you know, start putting uh, our local equivalent of Uyghurs in concentration camps, but maybe it does mean that we should have five-year plans, for example. So there are things like this that we should learn. This is our, my broad framing on the topic. I wanted to open this discussion with me and Ash and see where it can go.
1: Yeah, this is definitely something I've thought about for a long time. And I think that as we've done this project, I have definitely deepened and evolved my general analysis here in a lot of ways, changed some opinions and so on. I think that my the the key constant thing though you know, for, for years now, uh, as I've been thinking about this, is that our key problem is not taking China seriously and also not taking the lens of, of looking at it as its own thing. There's a bunch of reasoning. There's a bunch of discourses. There's a bunch of, you know, goals that exist uh, in the Chinese context. Our tendency for a long time was to just try and translate everything into a more familiar frame, or even assume that, well, they're, they're, you know, this, they're just lying about this. This is just ideological dress, and and actually, we know that they're they're doing X, Y, Z, and this has clearly been wrong. And you know, I'll I'll sort of say again what I've said a lot of times here. Had in the 90s and the 2000s people been reading what the Chinese Communist Party and what Chinese intellectuals were saying about the goals of modernization and development, I think we would have had far less of this delusion that it was inevitably leading toward liberalism or toward democracy. So what is the takeaway from that, though? You know, I, I think one can make that observation becomes a little banal unless we kind of take it further. I think that the reason China is important in a lot of ways is that a lot of what we say about China actually reflects our understanding of ourselves. And what I mean by that is, in saying you know in the late 90s that China was going to become a democracy, what were we actually saying? I think we were saying something like technological, material, industrial society is good and useful because it is kind of a vehicle for liberal democracy. Right, I think this is the story that we have told since at least World War II. Uh, maybe we've even told it before that. It turns out that um, maybe liberal democracy was the vehicle for industrial society, and maybe as contradictions in liberal democracy start to accumulate to the degree that they become they become unwieldy contradictions, maybe industrial society ends up dispensing with liberal democracy before the reverse happens, and. That claim, I think, forces us to look at what kind of civilization are we in, right? Like, what is the fundamental thing we actually share? We told the story that, you know, Western countries and, and you know, some allies like Japan uh, all shared these general commitments to freedom, to individual rights, to electoral systems and so on. But obviously, the other thing we shared and the thing that, uh, you know, most countries have kind of assimilated into is a society which is highly individualized which privileges legible and contractual forms of relationship, corporatized institutions like states and companies, and so on. And, you know, this actually seems to shift across political systems, across cultural values. You know, it assimilates cultural values, but it's not like everyone looks the same at the end. China and America still have very different cultural values in a lot of ways. But it clearly seems to be the case that in reality, this kind of form of life, this sort of society... Is the actual fundamental thing here. And so, here, you know, I'll, I'll kind of make a bald claim here, which is that China is part of our civilization. There is this frame you can take where, uh, and the Chinese do take this to a degree, right? That China is a distinct civilization. It went through this period of decline in the modern era, and now, you know, it is a civilization kind of in resurgence. And so there's conflict with Western civilization. I think it is true that China was a distinct civilization. I'm going to make the claim here that. If we understand our modern civilization, and again, maybe modern civilization in the sense of modernity is the more correct term than Western civilization. If we understand that, then civilizations which assimilate to that form of life, in a sense, become part of our civilization. And we've seen this historically before, right? Like, you know, uh, 400 BC, Rome is not really a fundamental part of the Hellenic world but it becomes more and more powerful. It assimilates to it. Eventually, it takes over the Hellenic world. Periphery powers rise, you know, assimilating to a form of life and then rising to take control of that form of life. This is something that has happened historically. It's it's a very normal arc of history. You read historians like Carol Quigley, they discuss this in depth. So yeah, if if we take that form of life, This industrial society is the key thing. And we we actually start to think about, hmm, maybe we outcompeted people because we had the most functional form of that society. Then the fact that China is kind of selectively assimilating it becomes important. Because if China, theoretically, can make a more functional version of that society, and now functional here doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, good for everyone or even nice to live in, although I think to a degree that stuff does in fact matter. Um, I certainly don't think China can stay utterly dystopian for too long. And, you know, definitely for most people in China, life has gotten better in the last two generations. But if they do create a more functional model of this thing, there is no reason to think that their, you know, their form, their iteration of this this modern industrial society thing can outcompete and a periphery can rise. And once again, kind of try to take control of the thing, or at least represent this big problem. So I'll, I'll leave it there for now. I'd be interested to hear your, your responses to that, Wolf. But basically, that starting point, China is part of our industrial civilization. What we have here is a rising periphery against the previous center, that being America, obviously.
0: Yeah. So I think you're exactly right on China being broadly a part of Western industrial modernity so some key clues here their schools look like ours their clothes look like ours their you know obviously the machines the actual industry looked like looks like ours used to look back when we did that the paths of life
1: look like ours right have a career in a high quality sector like finance or tech or medicine
0: or law yeah right exactly the yeah the jobs the the kind of values of life you know if you look at the the sort of Chinese upper middle class and the elite. You see a bunch of people who want to send their kids to Harvard. They want to have Gucci. They want to they want to live in a nice big house. You know, it's this it's this very like global kind of aspirational bourgeoisie lifestyle that 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 is very obviously closely related to what has happened in the West.
1: Even the propaganda looks like ours made in China. <laughs> The China dream. It's literally drift uh, off of American propaganda. Right, right,
0: right, right. So, you know, what would an actually different civilization look like? I think having the very basics like your own clothes would be would be something. You know, they're, they're working on this. They're with the Hanfu movement where sort of fashionable young people in China adopt traditional sort of pre-modern Chinese clothing styles. Uh, It's very beautiful, very aesthetic. I hope they go down that route. But that that is not how Xi Jinping dresses. Xi Jinping wears a suit. Uh, His suit is either navy or black. His tie is either red or blue. Um, In other words, he's an American. So, and, and, you know, that's a little bit bit of an exaggeration, of course, that not everyone who wears a, a suit is American, but it's very clear that he's influenced by America. I think the way to understand this is that We actually have an enormous amount in common with China in terms of our modernized development path. The key difference, there is a key difference within the modern Western industrial paradigm. And that key difference is the sort of liberal democracy capitalism model versus the not liberal, not democracy, state led industrial development model. and this has been one of the key divisions within Western modernity for, you know, over a hundred years. I think um, we've seen, you know, we saw obviously with with the communist world, maybe they count as something different, but things that were going on in Japan, things that were going on in uh, Germany, things that even were going on in the United States, these things were live debates, The this question of, of kind of how industrial society is to be organized—whether it's going to be some kind of technocracy or or this this democracy thing that our pseudo democracy that we ended up uh, settling on, you know, at least in the West—and so yeah, there's there's the way I see it: you have this overall family of of westernized industrial modernities, and you have a a key sort of split within those which is the the statist path or the capitalist path or capitalist democratic whatever civil society path and and in some ways the the key actual core distinction there is simply how formalized and overt power is because all the same institutions that China has for engineering their future, you know, making plans, doing social engineering on the population, sort of laying out new political rules for everyone to follow and, and strategizing about those things and enforcing those rules and generally just how they develop their society. It's actually all very similar to how we do it in the West. There's there's in some sense only a few ways to do this. The key difference, though, is we present that as sort of private sector, civil society, NGOs, foundations, and public discourse, whereas they present it as the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, under the surface, those things may not be all that different. The differences in branding. Um, but I do think that the overt branding now, this is where I, we, we get into my personal opinion. I do think that the overt branding on power actually is much more functional because you can be much more honest about what's going on. Everyone can understand the thing much more clearly, and uh, I think you can coordinate it better. So that may be one reason, uh, if I can throw one out, that China has been doing very well is because they have a more overt and honest model of how industrial, modern, life actually works. There may be other differences between us and them. I think another one that is worth bringing up, which is a a different sort of thing, is the question of what ambitions do the elite have? So uh, do you even have an ambitious elite? I I think in both cases, uh, China and the United States have shockingly few actually ambitious elites but uh, and shockingly, many who just want to grill in some form or other. And, you know, this is a serious problem for both societies. But I think I think in China, at least the president Xi is one of those ambitious elites. And in the West, it's hard to identify um, big, big visible ones. But uh, what what kind of is behind that There's there's this possible division behind that, which is this question of do the elites feel secure in their current position or do they feel that they need to develop their empire overall to get a better position? Uh, Do they feel secure and satisfied or do they feel perhaps insecure in some way that that and and unsatisfied in some way that prompts them to grow the overall pie? I think, you know, America used to have that latter outlook since since the 60s, basically, that outlook has become unfashionable. Um, the, the view is much more that, you know, we've kind of got it going on. We just have to clean up the pollutions, d- don't let the wrong people vote too much, make sure the right people are voting, you know, make sure that, that the financial system is all staying very secure and everyone's, you know, everyone by which we mean everyone who already has money is getting richer. And and, you know, make sure there's no no sort of foreign challengers that are disrupting the model too much. That's been kind of the, the elite outlook in the West, whereas in China, the elite outlook is much more like we're totally screwed unless we become extremely powerful as a country. Because, you know, as far as the West is concerned, which is to say the the established order, we're just some third world backwater with uh, interesting pretensions. And and you know they'll treat us like they taught they they have been treating us for the last hundred years, which is to say a century of humiliation. This is how the Chinese see it, or not not precisely the last hundred years. This is more like, you know, fifty years ago they they were thinking f- thinking this way.
1: Well, cent- the century of humiliation ending with with national liberation, uh, and then the path from from nineteen forty nine onward being the slow climb back to uh, civilizational redemption.
0: Right. But then that slow climb is obviously totally informed by that worldview. It's like we've been humiliated by the West. They will continue to humiliate us until we become rich and powerful and able to to fend them off. And and so that's that's their outlook. Um, I think that is a very rational outlook for them to have. It is, in fact, true that for all its bluster, the West does not act, is not actually all that interested in uh, third world development. And it's it's. You know, mildly interested in it, but the you know the the the, the person who cares about you most is always yourself, and uh, so China has decided to take matters, take its own fate into its own hands, and become rich and powerful. And so, if that's your elite outlook, you know, obviously you're going to try to develop society. If the if you have the more Western elite outlook, where actually the most of the threats are just to your current position then mostly you're not going to be that interested in development. So this is another theory on what's going on.
1: Notice that that conflict, like that global conflict in, you know, industrial society or whatever we we want to call this thing, it's kind of reproducing conflicts that also exist at more local levels, right? Like at the level of America, we also have s- statist and private and centralized and decentralized. We have these power struggles that happen regularly over, you know, who who are the beneficiaries, who are the drivers of this thing? You, I mean, you even see it on the city level. Uh, you see cities, you know, compete against other cities. And to, to me... There, there's actually something to be said there then about the strength and vitality and power of this form of society that, you know, in general, someone who is serious and someone who wants to kind of like make themselves matter, make themselves powerful in the world end up one way or another trying to figure out ways that they can not just become part of this thing, but kind of take control of it. You know, if we imagine this as a kind of more conscious thing, given that there is stagnation occurring in one, you know, section of that society in America, a form of life that then can go to other regions... And kind of like excise some of the parts that seem to be dysfunctional, assimilate new people to that mode of life. Like if this were a living thing, this would actually be a very healthy kind of organism. You,
0: you, you, mean, uh, you mean industrial modernity here?
1: I mean industrial modernity, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean industrial modernity does seem to be actually somewhat healthy in our in our most recent print uh, edition so, and, and actually online, of course. Uh, Samo had this great article, The End of Industrial Society, that challenged that idea of industrial modernity being uh, secure in the the medium and long term. Uh, Basically, his view is that it's going to burn out its own uh, sort of demographic and cultural and social technological base. And uh, China, for example, will become post-industrial the same way we did. And maybe someone will figure out how to industrialize. Other parts of the world, um, you know, India to a further extent than it is now or Africa or, or maybe in the Middle East, you know, there's there's various places that could take a crack at it. But but at some point, at some point, if everyone has transitioned into this kind of stagnant postmodernity, the that form of life has has Run its course, but you know while it's while it's still getting there, it, it does seem to be quite healthy.
1: Yeah, there's this question. You know, th- there's the question of the next fifty years, and then there's the next the question of the next one hundred and fifty years. Um, I think those are actually the appropriate timescales. I expect that in the next fifty years, we will see China become much more powerful. Will it entirely eclipse America? We'll see. I don't think it can entirely eclipse America, but it can certainly outgrow it uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, as for 150 years from now, I mean, you know, uh, we we're already seeing China hitting this like demographic inflection point. It does not seem clear that China or or other East Asian countries like Japan are able to do the immigration thing effectively.
0: I I'm sort of feeling. I mean, this is somewhat off topic, but I, I feel it's important to address. I think that there's somehow. People have uh, sort of a cope or like, you know, coping mechanism with with this idea of, of oh, the West will win because of uh, immigration or, or multiculturalism or something like okay. this is not my claim, by the way. I, yeah. But but I see people making this kind of claim. It's like that that, you know, uh, America's, you know, obviously in decline. China's obviously on the rise. They have five times as many people as us, um, but but, you know, we'll be able to to import people from somewhere else and and like catch up to that. you know, there'll be a billion Americans um, and uh, by which we mean, you know, a billion people from all over the world who happen to live in America. And and somehow this will this will like turn things around. But it actually doesn't feel realistic. It feels like someone's searching for ways to kind of um, cling to their their they um, cling to sort of their their current worldview. Because when you look at what actually happens with immigration, you get a lot of you, you end up just importing these these foreign caste hierarchies. You, you get a lot of, you know, segmentation, segregation. People people either don't interact with each other or, you know, if they if they assimilate, then social trust goes down a lot because no one knows how to understand each other. No one's used to getting along. They actually, in fact, do have conflicts between these different base cultures and and so what you and and then you know insofar either way you know whether whether it's kind of this 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 multicultural model of of quasi segregation or whether it's some kind of assimilation you have then in the politics a bunch of conflict between these groups they don't in fact have all that much in common. They don't actually get along. It's like all we have in common is, you know, we come to America to like have freedom to buy consumer goods and, and work high paying jobs like that's That's actually the only vision that's being sold there. And uh, I don't think that's enough to actually bind people together. So I think that the the idea that immigration is actually that much of a strength relative to East Asia, I'm not convinced by it.
1: Right. So I'm making a much more narrow claim here. My narrow claim here is that when the West started hitting the demographic inflection points, they were able to do the offshoring and to do the immigration. And regardless of what the ratio was between how much was real and how much was sort of just giving people confidence that the thing could go on so that they would keep investing, it did something like it kept things going in some way, whereas China is hitting that inflection point with no scaffolding whatsoever.
0: I, I think that, I think though that the thing that it kept going, like again, this is kind of an aside, but maybe it's important here. I think the thing that it kept going was not even the economic thing. I think it was the political thing. Uh, the the immigration was primarily a political action to maintain the hegemony of the current system. Like in the 60s and so on, there there was this crisis of, of um, you know, Nico, Uh, One of our writers describes this as like the falling rate of profit problem where the like as society had reached this level, this this kind of level of, of maybe full development, suddenly the the capitalist class was unable to to continue their growth of private wealth within the current paradigm unless they figured out a way to disenfranchise. the the rest of society. And so globalization and immigration basically uh, are effectively that. And and so then you see thereafter this divergence between, you know, GDP and and uh, the prosperity of the median and average worker. I think that was the actual thing going on there, which is, say, a political question of who gets the goods, not a question of Uh, You know, do we have enough labor to to keep the machine running? Because if you look at the actual costs on that stuff, it's like not clear that a profit has even been made. It's more like that the, the 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 kind of private wealth ruling class has better leverage. In the post-immigration situation, but anyways, this is all my like. This is this is a bunch of skepticism on that claim. I'm not sure how seriously I take these things, but I think they need to be considered, and we shouldn't blindly sort of dive into this. Like, oh yeah, if we just continue with the the kind of political initiatives of the last generation, um, you know, somehow that will that will like be the big difference between us and China. I think you know the the question. China has this demographic problem, right, as, as we do. I think America actually has it worse. But there is this demographic problem of in Western industrial modernity.
1: Well, and, and so that's but that's only one component, too, right? So like, I, I think the more the more important claim that I, I, I'm, I'm going to make here is that when we look at how long it takes a, a society to sort of go through the arc of that initial vital first flush of industrial modernity. To the kind of like this stagnation phase where it seems like institutions are doing themselves and it seems like these inflection points are getting hit. Yeah, I mean, you look at Europe and Britain, right, you know, kind of fuzzy where you want to put the start, but I'd say at least the 1700s through to the, the early 20th century, we're looking at like around 250 years or so. You, you then move to America, you know, and it's like, okay, maybe like, you know, mid 1800s, early 1800s, through to, let's say, uh, 1973. And Russia, you know, went from, you know, Soviet modernization and, and kind of, you know, imperial modernization shortly before that, although that didn't last as long, but let's give, you know, they, they just under 100 years, and they, they still are, you know, they have these kind of functional parts of their society, they, they might still kind of successfully pull something off but they are no longer, you know, a a superpower. So there's definitely been a stagnation that's happened there within less than 100 years. And obviously, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a political stagnation. And then there's this question, okay, so it's, it's strange that these cycles seem to be shortening. If China so early in its path, you know, 50 years, essentially, is already hitting its inflection points, unless their elite, their political ruling class, are able to kind of figure out solutions to this, they might have even even shorter arc and so in the short run there is this health in industrial society and china is seems to be in a strong position now to be this rising periphery but if that ends up being a short arc then china could just be more of a symptom in the long run that like there is this more general essentially global level of decline going on
0: yeah so what right so in that view what you actually have is you know western modernity western industrial modernity as an overall project has you know continued to operate and various powers have played catch up growth to it and which is to say joined the project and received an immediate very large benefit as they catch up to its current level but the actual current level of the thing is stagnant
1: right so the short run revitalization hides a kind of longer run stagnation basically
0: right right so so china is is not going to sort of outrun the West in this view China is rather going to catch up to the stagnant and dysfunctional but wealthy position of the West and then you know we'll see what happens there So within the model it's sort of like China I, I think I think the the Chinese strategists um, you know we've we've done a lot of look at this uh, looking at this and they don't seem to see things, All that differently than that. Like basically, their view is okay, we're going to do catch up, we're going to become, we're going to sort of fully join modernity. And then, you know, we're five times bigger and the Chinese Communist Party is more coherent. So then that will. you know, we'll become the center of, of the world and we'll be able to sort of overcome our century of humiliation. It's it's an interesting motivational structure. It, it makes sense. It does make sense. It's like it's it's a it's a sound strategy. The question is, once you get there, you know, within within the paradigm, they're not breaking the paradigm. It'll be within the paradigm. And then there's this question of like, OK, now they're going to become the the center of of industrial modernity. It'll no longer be, you know, entirely Western, but in fact, it will still be descended from from the Western thing. Maybe there will be a big fight with America over that, you know, because America currently has has the bigger military and and more established power, and China has uh, very shortly, I think, the um, or they're attempting to get the bigger economy and kind of more vitality. We'll see what they actually manage to do. They actually aren't even as uh, autarkic as the United States. I mean, everyone imagines the United States being this kind of like, oh, yeah, we just import everything from China and Germany and like we can't do everything ourselves. But actually, the United States is the most autarkic country. We, we do the most things ourselves uh, of anyone in the world. So that's interesting. But yeah, so that, that's, that's like this conflict within the paradigm. But like the moving beyond the paradigm is not something that's on the table currently.
1: Right, and and I think that one of the reasons it's important to be actually looking at what is China saying, you know, uh, what what is its discourse or are its discourses because there are a number of them. One of the things you see there is there there is this kind of confidence and triumphalism vis a vis America. You do see that they are confident that China can overcome America. They are not confident, uh, you know, and you see this with the New Left. You see this with the, with the Neo Confucians. You see this with kind of like party loyalists like Zhang Xigong, uh, and you see it with liberals. No one is convinced that China actually has found kind of like the stable uh, path. Like they are very worried about the long run. They're worried about it intellectually, right? And so you you have these kind of... Neo-Confucian scholars who, who are trying to figure out ways to, as they call it, unify the three traditions, uh, you know, those being kind of like classical Chinese civilization, uh, the the Maoist era in terms of ethics and like the sense of justice, you sort of an aside here, right? It's interesting that that Maoist era is viewed um, both as chaotic, but also as having this kind of like flush of moral rigor. And then finally, the modern era of of industrial modernization. You you get the new left, you know, where the the capitalist path has been successful, but it's produced a bunch of dangerous side effects, like a rising oligarchy. And we see she is in fact, most recently, right, cracking down on the tech sector. Um, I I saw that apparently today he the uh, WhatsApp has just been delisted from um, certain app stores. We're we're seeing even a A reversal uh, where towns and and municipalities seem to be now getting pushed in the opposite direction on things like facial recognition. There, the signal seems to now be actually, you know, we don't maybe we don't want to be leaning as hard into the techno-surveillance state. Um, And then obviously we've seen crackdowns on, you know, with the corruption files on rich and powerful party men and on, uh, you know, even Jack Ma. uh, It seems like. And you know, and, and basically, you know, I could go through through all of these right uh, with with the liberals. There's this kind of concern that the sort of like individualist vitality of China um, is not being properly developed. It's interesting that they seem to have kind of leapfrogged entirely the kind of just like lazily confident phase, essentially of uh, society. Right there, there has essentially never been a time in the last hundred fifty years where the the kind of like Chinese political consciousness was one
0: of resting on their laurels. Well, they don't have any laurels to rest on right now. They have very consciously a lot of existential problems. And I mean, in the west we've we've kind of not really had existential problems for for a long time. Even the cold war, it's like, yeah, you know, we might get into this this nuclear slap fight with with the United the USSR, but like even that you know by 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 the what like the 80s it was kind of just just this abstract thing you know by the 90s it was quite clear that it wasn't going to happen like we we've been we've been smug for a very long time
1: the bi- important difference to me here between america and china is that in china people's grandparents have memories of living through the 70s through like almost a state collapse in many regions and you know 150 years ago there is the memory of of foreign powers literally destroying their society literally hooking people on drugs you know as a path of dependency i mean you know century of humiliation here is very visceral and when those two moments in history define your consciousness politically you are going to be super aware of existential threats in a way that no West, no American elite certainly uh, has been in, in probably, you know, since the civil war, really America has not had, had an actual destruction or a looming destruction right in its face for a long yeah, time. Yeah,
0: No, it, it's always been this kind of like, we can hype ourselves up with these, with these existential narratives about, you know, if, if, if the Germans take the continent, it's going to be the end of the world or or like, you know, if Japan takes the Pacific, it's going to be the end of the world. But like these have always been these sort of overreacting to these peripheral events. Um, rather than rather than like very overt in your face existential crisis which which China has been chewing on for what like 200 years now like even the nuclear drills
1: right that is existential but it's somewhat different from seeing Japanese or British soldiers marching through your streets tearing down your signs kill you know raping your women killing your men and uh, putting up a new flag
0: yeah so this is this interesting um There's this other thread here of basically back to kind of the question of learning from China, their situation reflects our situation or rather how we see their situation reflects how we see our situation. And I think this goes both ways. So, you know, the first and most obvious way is that I think when we look at China we are thinking about industrial modernity without all the usual ideological blinders because we don't have to think that it's good right and in its current pattern so we look at china and we say oh actually the real story of industrial modernity is this you know oppressive surveillance state with sort of uh this untouchable elite that that controls everything from from the center and you know that's and and everyone just gets you know ground to dust under Under the boot of like state capitalism or something, like this is sort of how we see China in in kind of broader discourse. and and that, in some sense, is just a reflection of how we see modernity that that actually we think that is sort of the most natural and correct path. And we think that you know to to do industrial modernity properly would be this oppressive surveillance state kind of uh worker exploitation thing and you know to the extent that we're not going down that path it's because we're kind of uh you know either more enlightened to just like not do that development thing you know we're afraid of of development we're afraid of having a strong state we're afraid of uh, industrial progress, like all of these things, I think, are very clear that we are afraid of these things. Um, so we decide not to go down that route. But then the other side is even insofar as we do decide to go down that route, we go about it in that sort of evil way that we imagined it has to be. So, you know, we have different propaganda in the West, but we're also doing this this like politically invasive surveillance state thing. We're also doing this this very extractive posture towards towards workers and so on. And so where we flip this around and, and have it go the other way is, well, actually, what's going on in China isn't quite the the horrors out of our imagination. Some of it is, you know, what's going on in, in uh, Xinjiang and so on, but but a lot of it isn't. And, um, you know, a lot of it is actually just people being optimistic for their country as they collectively pull themselves out of poverty and, and into some form of of national prosperity. And that actually like this is the picture that we don't see when we're, we're just like projecting our anxieties onto China. And and, you know, we don't see the healthy discourse they have at at the top level, you know, strategically about where China should should go and what the what the, the biggest problems are and all this that, that you've been alluding to. With between all these different ideological factions, we don't see, you know, the party just like consistently setting ambitious plans and then actually fulfilling them. You know, in the West, we're so used to kind of plans being uh, propaganda and, and like no one really expects them to be fulfilled. So we sort of look at China and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, all those five year plans, that's just some some bullshit that they need to to maintain legitimacy. No, actually, they they, they go and do them. They They accomplish their five year plans. So you go and you look at China as it actually is throwing out all of our anxieties. And what you find is a society that works a little bit better than we expected, at least in some important ways. And and then we take that back and reflect it back onto ourselves. And I think this is where it gets actually really productive. And this is why I think this is an important thing to do. You you take those successes, you reflect them back onto ourselves and you say, hey, or, or even their mindset or their mindset around Crisis, like like this, the the existential outlook, right, that they have towards everything, and if we can learn from that, you know, this is something we've advocated before with Palladium that like, in fact, no civilization is this existential uh, crisis a- enterprise. You have to have that outlook, or you eventually get wrecked, and and so we we can go and learn from them. they, they we can learn that urgency, right? You look at at the urgency they have towards these questions of national development. And, and like the coherence of their system. And we can take that attitude back to America and we can say, hey, maybe we could, have, maybe a lot of that stuff actually applies here because we're not imagining that they're wrong. They're not wrong that they face existential challenges, you know, even after, even if they've they've gotten to that point of, of total sort of modern development, they're not, they're still not wrong to be expecting more existential challenges. It's it's actually rational to have that. And if we learn that by looking at China, then we take that back to America and we say, hey, maybe it's still rational even in America that we have existential challenges and, and that we can have that posture towards it and that we can do a, a sort of modern development that, you know, maybe isn't the Chinese path, but isn't what we've been doing either. And it can actually be optimistic. So I think like some of the things to learn from China, again, are this this like existential outlook, that the challenges we face are very serious. They are existential challenges and we must overcome them. And then the second thing is the optimism. There's the, a the sort of determinate optimism. Um, I know like Peter Thiel says that, that China is actually a determinate pessimist, but maybe they are in fact optimistic when you look closer. They do seem to be more optimistic uh, than we are in some ways right now.
1: I think the optimism is that things can be achieved.
0: Right. But things things can be achieved and things can get better. And the the modern industrial project can be a good thing. And and it can be liberating and and bring wealth and happiness and prosperity. And that's so these are things like these are very fundamental points that I think we can learn from them. I think there's a ton else. But like, again, we're coming back to this frame. Let's learn from China. These are some of the things that I think we can learn and a sort of existential A serious outlook on the fate of your civilization and an optimism that it's possible to build like a collective prosperity through industrial modernity. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.